Hey, if you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and, uh, and turn to James 5 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you or you're in need of one just in general, there's some in the back there. Feel free to uh, grab one of those today. Let that be one of our, our gifts to you this morning. Well, we are, uh, we're nearing the end of the book of James, which we've been going through for uh, these last seven or eight months. Um, really just, man, just taking these smaller passages and just wringing out all the wisdom that is in this letter, which was written by James, who is the brother of Jesus. And because we are taking these smaller texts each week, it's good for us to be reminded again of, of what's going on. Why is James writing this letter in the first place? So if you remember, this letter is written to Jewish believers who were scattered throughout Palestine and who were suffering both persecution and poverty. And, um, and James really, he really writes to these guys just to address those things. And it's good for us to be reminded of that because it's easy for us to uh, feel kind of disconnected from something that's been written so long ago like this was. But humanity actually hasn't really changed all that much. We too, like these Jewish believers, when we are, man, when we're facing suffering or facing trials or hardships, be it financial or uh, physical or maybe uh, relational, man, we too, we don't, we don't always think very clearly, do we? Or, or more importantly, very godly. And that's why wisdom from above, the, the title of our series, uh, is, is so essential for us, and, and that's, why, that's why that is so, so important for us. And so if you're there, James 5, let's look at what sort of wisdom that James has for us today. James 5, 12 says, but above all, brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now, when James says above all here, commentators really differ on what they believe above all actually means, all right? Some, some think James is putting this at the utmost of importance over everything else that he, has, uh, that he has addressed thus far in the letter. Others think uh, that this is the beginning of the final list of things that James is about to go into here in this last chapter of James. And some just think that above all is simply a phrase that just means in conclusion or to finalize. But whichever it may be, it doesn't change what James is calling us to here, which at first glance might be, might be kind of hard to see, but what he's calling us to as Christ followers is actually a life of radical truthfulness. This is a call to truthfulness. How many of you guys have ever seen uh, Home Alone? The first two specifically, yes, yeah, a few of you. Well, if you haven't, you've been living under a rock for some time, but if you haven't seen it, just to, just to give you kind of a summary of it, it's basically three main characters, all right? There's these burglars, Harry and Marv, and then there's Kevin McAllister, the kid that always gets to seem, uh, he seems to get left behind on vacations, and he just, he, his parents seem to lose him a lot. Now, if you've seen Home Alone 2, there is this scene where the infamous Sticky bandits, all right, Harry and Marv themselves, they go to knock off or rob Duncan's toy chest. Now, Kevin, he finds out that they're going to do this, and so he goes to catch them in the act. 
right? And he brings his camera and he actually snaps a photo of them, catching them red-handed. Now, naturally, Harry and Marv, they want that camera, all right? So they chase Kevin down to his aunt and uncle's house, which is abandoned. And you know the scene, Kevin climbs up to the roof, he gets up on the roof. Harry gets there and he yells up at him and he says, basically, it wouldn't mean anything for me as a burglar to hurt you. He says, but since we're in such a hurry, he's like, how about you just toss down the camera and then we'll be on our way. You'll never have to hear from us again. And Kevin says, you promise? And what does Harry say? I cross my heart and I hope to die. Now, Harry has every intention of not letting Kevin go, all right? They are still really angry at everything that Kevin did to them in the first Home Alone. And you know the rest of the scene, instead of the camera, Kevin, he throws down a brick, crushes Marv right in the head, and the movie goes on. But like Harry, these Jewish believers, they were making promises in their own name, in God's name, and in Jerusalem's name, and they had every intention of breaking them. Now, James is not saying that we should never make a promise or that we shouldn't go before a judge and a jury and we shouldn't take an oath of truthfulness. That's not what he's getting at here, but rather it shouldn't be a part of our regular everyday speech. Right? He's addressing the falseness and the flippancy of which these believers had been regularly inciting oaths and profaning the name of God and of their own witness. And it becomes so regular that there was really just, there was really no differentiation between what was true and what was a lie. And it's important for us because this is not just a word of warning for them, this is a word of warning for us. So don't get lost here. The issue here is not so much with the idea of making oaths or commitments themselves, but with the truthfulness of the words of which the oath is covering. We see God himself make oaths and his people are even encouraged throughout scripture to make oaths. In Acts 2.30, Luke speaking about David says, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and he spoke about the resurrection of Christ. And in the Old Testament, we see in Deuteronomy 10 that it says, you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and hold fast to him and by his name you shall swear. We even see the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 1. He calls on God as his witness to the truth that he has been proclaiming. And just like God's people were uh, encouraged to keep their oaths, they were actually equally discouraged to break them. Leviticus 19.11 says, you shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. And lastly, Numbers 32 says, if a man vows a vow to the Lord or he swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds from his mouth. And so if you're, if you're super confused now and you're thinking, man, it sounds like James is just really contradicting the rest of scripture here. Well, he's actually not. And this is why the context of what's going on with these people at the time is so important. Otherwise, our own understanding will actually be contradicted. James is actually pointing back here to Jesus' words from his Sermon on the Mount. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew 5. Matthew 5, 33, just a few books back. 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, first one of the Gospels there, Matthew 5.33. Man, Jesus uh, here, he's really addressing what the life of a believer looks like, what it means to be an example of the kingdom of God. And he says this in verse 33. Again, that you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You can stay there in Matthew, because we're actually gonna go back there in a little bit. So there was a contradiction of teaching that was taking place during the time of Jesus and James. Rabbis and teachers during that time, they were abusing God's word by teaching ways to get around your oath, all right? Like, like many rabbis and teachers, they, they were teaching that if you swore towards God or towards Jerusalem, you were not bound to keep your word. But if you swore by God or if you swore by Jerusalem, you actually were. And so what was once being used in the Old Testament as a sign of a committed life to God had by the time that the New Testament was being written actually become clever ways to really pull the wool over someone's eyes. Dr. Arkant Hughes says it was really the original children's, I had my fingers crossed. And what it reveals is really the sinfulness and the deceitfulness of the heart of man, that we would take something that was directly given by God and we would twist it to be used for our own purposes and our own sinful desires. And that's, that's actually something that James is driving at over and over in this letter. So remember all that he has told them in this letter thus far. Remember, remember the importance of taming the tongue that we looked at a couple months ago in chapter three. That our words, they, they carry the weight of our hearts. They reveal something about what's happening down there and they, they hold power, don't they? Our words hold power. And what James is saying here in today's text is that our regular everyday speech should remain so truthful that we do not need to regularly make oaths trying to prove our truthfulness and that we should never get to a place where we use God's name or the name of anything that he has created to purposefully lie or to deceive one another. Dr. Helmut Thielich, I think that's how you say his name, is a German theologian during uh, the Hitler era, and he says this about swearing in God's name. He says, whenever I utter the formula, I swear by God, I'm really saying now I'm going to mark off an area of absolute truth and put walls around it to cut it off from the muddy floods of untruthfulness and irresponsibility that ordinarily overruns my speech. In fact, I'm saying even more than this. I'm saying that people are actually expecting me to lie from the start. Matthew Henry, who was an English theologian, pastor from the 1600s, he says, it's actually being suspected of falsehood that leads men to swearing and making oaths. Man, when I was, uh, when I was in grade school, I'm not sure the exact grade, I think fifth, and this may come as a surprise to you guys, but I was a bit of a troublemaker, all right? 
I, I got in quite a bit of trouble. And one day on the playground, another kid had, he called me a name. I can't say it here this morning. He called me a name and I unfortunately and regrettably, instead of letting it go, I, I hit him. I know it's not a real shining moment. Now him and I, were, we were the only ones that were around on the playground when this took place. And so none of the playground aides or the teachers saw what had happened. So they, they actually sent us to the principal's office to sort it out. And the principal, he did, uh, he did what any good principal would do. I know Kyle Gordon's not in here, but I know he has to do a lot of this. He, he questioned us both separately. And I remember the other kid went first and he went in there and the, the principal's name was Mr. Goss. Mr. Goss, if you're out there this morning, this is me confessing, I'm really sorry. He, uh, he asked the kid what happened and the kid told him that he had called me a name and that I had punched him. He told him the truth. And Mr. Goss, he believed him and that kid got in trouble for the name that he called me. Now, while he was in there telling the truth, I was out in the hallway crafting up my own which I told Mr. Goss was that we were playing football and I tackled him and he hit his head on the ground, bloodying his nose and he stood up and he called me that bad name. So I even mixed in some of the truth in there so that I, I would make sure that he was gonna believe my story. And I remember Mr. Goss, he looked at me and he said, Scott, is that true? And I said, Mr. Goss, I did not wanna get in trouble. I said, Mr. Goss, I swear on my life, I swear to God, I did not hit him. And he believed me. And I think back on that time and uh, I still got in trouble for tackling that kid in football, but a lot less trouble than I would have got if I would have said I punched him. The problem here is not only that I lied, but that I tried to uphold my lie and make it true with not only my own name, which didn't mean much, but also, and much more importantly, with God's. And you may think, but Scott, yeah, that was, that was just kids being kids though, right? That was just a boy. That's just boys being boys. The problem is, is that it's actually not just kids being kids. It was, it was much deeper than that. It was, it was me, a sinner, being sinful. I was purposefully deceitful and I was false with my words. The one, that's one thing uh, that James is warning against here. And we see this with the apostle Paul when he was confronted with being one of Jesus' disciples after Jesus had been taken into custody. He tried to use oaths and to swear to prove that his lie was a truth. So stay there in Matthew, just go over a few chapters to chapter 26. Matthew 26, verse 69. Verse 69 through 75 says this. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. And after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them for your accent betrays you. And then Peter began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed as Jesus had promised. When we when we hear stories like the one that I just told you about my childhood or what we just read about what Peter did, there's a part of us that goes, 
that's not right. We go, that is just wrong, that's not right. It hits against this desire in us for justice. And that desire for justice is actually good because it comes from a desire for truth. We actually, we actually like truth, don't we? Like, like none of you guys, you go to look at a used car and you ask the person if there's anything wrong with it or reason they're selling it and you hope, man, I hope this guy just lies to me right now. Like, please just tell me the lies so that I, I waste all my money on this piece of junk. No one does that. That's, that's crazy. And there was a time in Western culture specifically where there was an expectation that people were to be telling the truth. There was a time when there was an expectation that a business or a manufacturer was giving you a product that was true, that would last, that was what it said it was. And now some point along the way, that's, that's changed in a lot of ways, hasn't it? It's almost an accomplishment to be able to fool someone into something now. And it's probably part of the reason that we find ourselves more suspicious than ever these days because none of us likes the feeling of finding out that we've been duped, right? Finding out that we've been lied to or that we are being lied to. We, we hate it. We hate being lied to. And yet we've all experienced that, haven't we? We've all experienced at some point where someone has lied to us and we don't like that feeling. And the problem and what Jesus was referring to and what James is addressing in today's passage is that we don't mind nearly as much as we should when it comes to us lying to others. Even if we have to use God's name or the names of some part of his creation to do it, which James is actually saying here, those two things, they're actually, they're actually basically the same thing. See, lying has always tended to be one of those sins that doesn't really seem as bad as other sins, does it? Especially when we're talking about our own lying. We kind of think there are much bigger sins out there, so we, we really tend to write it off. Oh, come on. It was, just, it was just a little white lie. It wasn't that big of a deal. Or, Yeah, I, I mean, I guess I exaggerated the truth a little bit. I mean, it's not, it's not that big of a deal, is it? Or we tell stories that maybe embellish things a bit more to make it more exciting or make ourselves look better. And you guys should know, man, this is not a guy that's pointing fingers. I, I really struggle with those things. And let me tell you from experience that one danger of being flippant with your words and exaggerating things is that it can actually become so habitual that you might not even notice when you're doing it. And this had become true of these Jewish believers. And so James is not only saying to avoid being purposely false with your words, he's also saying don't be frivolous or flippant with them either. This is also being untrue and not what the kingdom of God looks like. Man, you might remember uh, the story of King Herod in Mark 6. You don't need to turn there where he... He flippantly makes an oath to the daughter of Herodias because he likes her dancing. And he swears her up to half of his kingdom and it really backfires on him when she makes the request for the head of John the Baptist. And because Herod is so bound by his pride and saving face with all of his guests and the oath that he flippantly made in public, he gives her what she asked for and he has John the Baptist beheaded. 
If there was ever a time to break an oath, that would have been it. Now, luckily, I'm sure that none of you have ever said something that you wish you could take back or made plans or committed to something that you later wish you wouldn't have. At least not in these last 20 minutes, I'm sure. I saw this picture not long ago that said, uh, being an adult is really about regretting plans you made six weeks ago and wondering why your back always hurts. And that's, that's really not super untrue. Sam Alberry says, we so easily say yes when what we mean is maybe, and we say maybe when what we actually mean is no. And that is being untruthful. Recently, I, uh, I noticed with my son, Thomas, that he kept telling me maybe when I would ask him to do something. I would, I'd be like, hey, Thomas, can you put your dishes in the sink, please, bud? And he'd be like, ah, uh, maybe. Maybe in a little bit. And I'm thinking, he's four. I'm thinking, man, what is going on with this? Like, why is he telling me maybe? Until one day, he asked me to go outside and jump with him on the trampoline. And I said, ah, uh, maybe in a little bit. Now, what I really meant was no, but I didn't say no so that I wouldn't have to deal with the meltdown. And because if I said maybe, I thought he might forget. Now, thankfully, I'm sure that I'm probably the only parent that's ever done that to their kids. But why are we so flippant? Why are we so flippant with our words? Why is being truthful so hard for us? I can't even tell the truth to my four-year-old. Because being truthful, that's, that's really what Jesus and James are both going after here. They're saying here very plainly, just tell the truth. Do the things you say you're going to do and don't do the things you say you're not going to do and don't invoke God's name or any other name falsely or frivolously to prove that you will or that you won't. In many ways, James is actually pointing back here again to our struggle of double-mindedness that he mentions in the first chapter of this letter. And it's there that we actually get to the real problem of what it is when it comes to being men and women of the truth, which is that we in and of ourselves, we can't actually do it. If we could, I could just simply say, hey guys, here's how you apply today's text. Stop making oaths, All right? That's it, all right, bye. See you, see you guys later. Like, I, I almost guarantee, like, Zach Watson is not running around, like, swearing by Zeus's beard to anybody in Ashland, and that you guys aren't going out and, like, swearing by the great city of Ashland that you will do something or you won't do something. We're probably not doing that. I could say, then, if the issue is that and that is lying, I could just say, hey, well, we'll just stop lying. Stop lying to one another. Do the things you say you're going to do. Kids, go tell your parents about that cookie you snuck this morning before you guys came to church, and you should do that. I could just tell you those things, and, and we could end this sermon right now, and we could just go home. But the real problem, the real issue, and the solution to the actual problem here is not that we all just need to try harder at being truthful. It's that we actually need to recognize how deceitful we are in the first place. Romans 3, 11 through 13, the Apostle Paul says this, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good. How many? Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues 
to deceive. The venom of asps, that's snakes, is under their lips. All of those they and theirs are us's. And what those verses and many others show us throughout scripture is that we can't not sin. We can't just stop being flippant and deceitful with our words on our own. We cannot make ourselves fully keep the truth so that we can be righteous in God's sight any more than a brush and some paint could by itself create a beautiful masterpiece. Without a creator, without someone behind it doing the work. We can't be truthful if the one who is truth is not in us. We need a savior. We need a savior who is neither flippant nor false with any of his words, his motives, or his promises. We also need one who understands how hard that it is to be truthful in a world of pain and of suffering and of hardship. Like these believers and like we so often face, we need a savior who knew these things and has not only faced them, but has conquered them. That he would be our example and our strength. First Peter 2, verses 21 through 22 says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. It says he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Jesus is the Savior that we need. He is truth. This is what he tells his disciples in John 14, 6, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one, no one, there's those words again, no one can come to God but through him. No amount of truth-telling church is sufficient for your salvation. And so then if our best attempts at being truthful can't save us, then why is it so important that we as believers speak the truth? Because it's through our truthfulness and love that our Christ-likeness is most revealed. This is why both telling the truth and gathering to hear the truth proclaimed together is so important. It's why he gave us this book and people to teach it. Ephesians 4, 12 through 16 says this, it's to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That, that is the importance of being a people of truth. It testifies to a savior who is true. So then what's the call for us? How, how do we apply this then to our lives? What should we do? The first thing we should do is this, should ask the question, is Christ in me? 
And if that answer is no, then I encourage you this morning to go before God in prayer and ask him to forgive you of your sin and to be Lord over your life. That through the gift of his grace, who is Christ, his son, who is truth, he would be in you and your life would be a testimony of God's love. Now, if that answer is yes, then this is the call. Take stock of your words. Take stock of your words. Look at some of the patterns in your everyday interactions at your job, at your school, with your spouse or your friends. What, what do they reveal about what's in your heart and therefore reveal actually what you believe about God to be true? Secondly, repent. Repent for the ways that you have been flippant and false with your words and pray. Don't, don't discount prayer in this. That shouldn't be the last resort. That should be the first place we go. Ask God to be your help and to lead you in truthfulness. If you ask God to help you be more like Christ in you, do you think that, do you think that he won't do that? That, that's what he wants for us. He wants us to be more like Christ in us. And lastly, as an encouragement, because I know, I know this is kind of a blunt text. Believers, remember God's faithfulness. Remember his promises that are true and that never fail. Remember the hope that we have in Christ in life and in death as we sang this morning. There is, there is no hope outside of Christ, none. But in Christ, we have all hope, all assurance of his faithfulness because he is not fickle or flippant or false with his words or his promises. He never, he never thinks to himself, man, I wish I didn't say that. Or how can I get out of this commitment that I have made? He is always truthful and forever faithful and we are his. And because of that alone, we too can be a people of truth to a world, to a world that actually longs for what is true. The call to truthfulness, man, it's not a call to be more self-reliant. It's a call to be more Christ-reliant. And so please don't leave here this morning thinking that this is just a text about being better people to avoid condemnation. All right, these are... These are not just moral changes that James is calling us to. He's calling us to be a people of truth because the Savior who is truth is in us. And the good and the glorious news of the gospel is that the power of his faithfulness and his truthfulness is far greater than our deceitfulness. Amen? Let's pray. Father, you are faithful. May that be uh, the resounding sound in our minds this morning. So help us to be a people who not only proclaim your truth, but are true in all of our other words and actions. Father, may that be uh, a testament to Christ in us that, and may the truth that we speak to one another in love bring about unity and maturity as we just read. God, there are, there are so many things that we question to be true or not in life. And I pray we would not be one more thing that people question as being truthful or not. 
So God, cement these things into our hearts this morning. Lead us into lives of honest confession and repentance when we fail and bring us back to the cross of our Savior who never fails, where we again and again find our hope and need for your faithfulness. So help us to not lose sight of our need for this and let it be what leads us in a life of radical truthfulness.